0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Urjan. Today, I'm joined by Mikia Koyagi, Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We'll be talking about his book, Iran in Motion, Mobility, Space, and the Trans-Iranian Railway, recently published by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Koyagi, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Eliza.
1: Of course, it's a pleasure. Um, so at the New Books Network, we like to start by learning about our guests' backgrounds and the genesis of their work. And, you know, in your book, and also personally, you know, I know that you come from corporate work in Japan and, you know, had this um, journey of eventually becoming a historian. So I'm especially keen on learning about your background. So could you tell us how you came to history, Middle East studies, and the history of the Trans-Iranian Railway?
0: Um, sure. So um, how I came to history and Middle Eastern studies, um, I never had a like really good, coherent uh, answer with a linear trajectory uh, to answer this question, because a lot of times I feel like it's a result of a very kind of series of random decisions I've made in my life that led me here. Um, So bear with me if it doesn't make any sense. But um, so I was born and raised in Japan. Um, I grew up mostly in Osaka, but I didn't really have any sort of personal connections to outside of the country. I didn't anybody from outside of the country, and I had never left the country until I was 18. But I was kind of interested in you know, international relations, current affairs, and world geography. So there's kind of a vague interest in places outside Japan. But um, for various reasons, I didn't major in anything related to uh, outside of Japan in college. And in fact, I didn't do much of work as an undergraduate student because I was in the judo team and I was devoted to practicing judo every day. And, <laughs> and when I graduated, I started to work for this Japanese railway company. And I thought I was going to have a corporate life um, for the rest of my life. But um, within two years, I was sort of unsure about what I wanted to do in my life. So there was kind of a big search for the self, what I wanted out of life, right? And then I quit my job. And by the time I quit my job, I kind of knew that I was going to grad school in the U.S., which was kind of a strange decision. Again, a little random because um, I had never been to the U.S. and I had never written anything substantial in English. Um, but I knew I wanted to be in a different part of the world. And I also knew that I wanted to study a different part of the world, you know, or even in a different time period to see how, you know, different different ways of thinking, different ways of having life um, from the ones that I was accustomed to. And I was feeling the environment I was in was a bit stifling in some ways. So why I chose the Middle East, especially Iran, as a place to study, it's again kind of a random decision because I knew I wanted to study somewhere unusual. Um, You know, a lot of my Japanese friends didn't have much interest in. Um, And that excluded East Asia and Southeast Asia because studying these places uh, is pretty common. And it also excluded uh, Europe and, um, North America. And that left me with maybe, um, India, the middle East or maybe Africa. And then, um, I traveled to a lot of places in the world and and especially India, Egypt, Iran. And I just thought Iran was much more interesting, um, no offense to those with connections to India or Egypt, but Iran was just, you know, people were really nice and laid back, and um, the architecture was really beautiful. So I thought, hmm, maybe I can study Persian. And yeah, so that's how I started to study Persian and started to, you know, learn Iranian history. And after I finished my master's, I felt like I knew very little. So I wanted to go on and decided to stick around and that sort of ended up my being here today Um, and in terms of how I came to this research on the Trans-Iranian Railway um, I think it goes back to when I was doing my uh, master's thesis research so I wrote a thesis on uh, the history of male and female physical education and scout movement in uh, Reza Shah's Iran, 1921 to 41. And so I had to look at a lot of uh, uh, Iranian newspapers and, and journals uh, from the time period to get a sense of what you know, uh, the Iranian press was saying about sports and physical education. And I ended up finding a lot of articles about this trans-Iranian railway project. Um, And it literally, it was reported every day with pictures. Um, So I wanted to know a little bit more about this, but I felt like many articles I saw were very formulaic in the sense that there's kind of a a ready-made narrative there about how The new Pahlavi state, the Iranian state, constructed a railway, and now we are moving toward progress. Um, And it didn't really tell us anything about the actual meaning or, or impact of the railway or how people used the railway. So all sorts of kind of interesting details about the place of this railway project in people's everyday life that was entirely missing in various press articles I saw. So it's kind of interesting, yet tantalizing. So I decided to kind of look deeper um, into this project.
1: That's wonderful to know. And I certainly am very glad that these, you know, random non-linear happening (laughs) led to the writing of this book. Um, And, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about this contribution that you briefly touched upon. So, you know, one of the main uh, objectives of your book, according to my reading, is to provide an alternative lens to methodological statism, uh, especially with regards to Iran's railway infrastructure. So could you tell us about methodological statism and the new approach you develop in the book? And, you know, in other words, what does moving beyond methodological statism allow us to grasp about infrastructure and mobility. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so, methodological statism is uh, it's a term um, Sirius Shayak used in his article from about a decade ago, and I read it when I was just starting to write uh, or do research on my dissertation, so it kind of shaped my early thinking about what, what to do with uh, the dissertation project. And the critique he raised in the article was that Iranian historiography, especially that of the Pahlavi era, which is uh, right before the Iranian revolution of 1979, um, it tended to see the state as the driving force of change in Iran, right? So it assumed that society was kind of passively receiving these state projects. So it's kind of a very top-down view of how history works, Mm -hmm which is not fundamentally wrong uh, because the Pahlavi period was a time in which modern state expanded rapidly with its bureaucratic system and with coercive um, power, right? Um, But there are problems. And I think that two problems that um, Shaoyev pointed out include, one is that it sees the state as the focal point of analysis, right? So there's much scholarly attention paid to state proclamations of what it intends to achieve, but not enough on how it was actually implemented on the ground in negotiation with various social groups. So it kind of ends up replicating the perspectives of political elites or technocratics, uh, technocratic elites, and I guess more generally planners of change, right? So that was one major problem. And the other problem and kind of related to the first one is that it kind of reifies the state as some sort of discrete entity um, hovering over society, right? So it kind of reinforces the state-society separation. And to rectify this problem, we shouldn't just look at a bottom-up approach, because that could also reinforce the unification and uh, the misconception of state and the society as separate entities. But what we needed to do was to come up with a way to think about these complex negotiations among various individuals and in groups to understand state and the society as m- more uh, mutually constitutive. And now, when I started to, like I uh, alluded to earlier, when I started to read a lot of primary sources about the railway project, that's exactly what was going on. And I think the problem was that in secondary literature too, the same perception was um, repeated. So um, maybe just I should talk a little bit about the Trans-Iranian Railway Project itself, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So it was the first uh, long-haul railway in Iran and it was built by the Iranian state between uh, 1927 to 1938 uh, with a supervision of this Danish consortium. Um, and it was to connect Tehran, the capital, with the Caspian Sea in the north and the Persian Gulf in the southwest. So it was very much seen as this main state of various state centralization projects of the time period. And, and you can probably see already how it's... A little different from many colonial or semi-colonial railways in terms of who undertook the project and when it happened. So there are a lot of interesting uh, characteristics of the project that I talk about in the book. Um, uh, but anyhow, so because the railway um, was a national project to enhance this international prestige of Iran and to display the success of Pahlavi state's technological modernity, It was advertised a lot in the press as the symbol Mm -hmm. of progress thanks to the shah's leadership and willpower and the literature repeated this not well i guess literature secondary literature didn't repeat the praise to the shah part that was not there but um when scholars critiqued the project, they often critiqued this despotism of the state imposed on society. And that kind of critique, I think, ended up reinforcing the same assumption about state-led centralization and national integration without any role given to, given to those outside of the political core of the new state. Um, And regarding the alternative framework, um, I I characterize it as a story of mobilities. And it took me a long time to figure out that I was writing stories of mobility. Uh, It was definitely not in my dissertation. And, well, in fact, I don't talk about mobility in any explicit way at all. And only during the long process of revising and completely rethinking the project I began to realize that this contestations over mobility was the core of the Trans-Iranian Railway project, and well, but by contestations of mobi- mobility, I'm you know talking about different ways in which people imagined and uh, experienced mobility in relation to the railway project.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, for example, for political leaders of the Pahlavi state. Mobility was, it was sort of a double edged sword, right? Because mobility was necessary for them to move troops from Tehran to the provinces to subjugate autonomous centers of power that were very active at the beginning of the Pahlavi period in the 1920s. And mobility was also necessary to produce a national economy because the idea of this national economy was predicated on the assumption of a smooth flow of goods. Um, And mobility was also necessary to propagate what official discourse um, called the new civilization, which is essentially a way of um, living based on imagined European modernity. So state propaganda at the time emphasized that enlightened citizens of Iran must propagate the new civilization from Tehran to the countryside by people visiting uh, the provinces to teach the quote unquote ignorant masses um, how to use silverware, how to use chairs and table, how to interact with the opposite sex in public, right? So to produce a politically, economically and culturally coherent national space, the Pahlavi state needed to facilitate movement um, of goods, people, ideas. Um, but unregulated mobility was also a menace. And I talk about tribal mobility, especially with its seasonal migration of pastoral nomads, uh, also pilgrimage traffic, especially transnational pilgrimage to Mecca, or Shi'i holy cities um, in Iraq, Najaf and Karbala especially, um, because they could create a potential for competing focal points of citizens' loyalty um, aside from the central state. And then there are also workers who migrate transnationally because they would... I mean, they they raised suspicion because um, they were seen as these propagators of labor activism and communism across the Soviet Union, Iran, Iraq, and this um, Iran surrounding world. So... The Pahavi state tried to regulate these types of threatening mobility, that the kind of mobilities that didn't really conform to the logic of the nation, both in terms of the spatial scale of their movement and the purpose of their movement. Um, but of course, people didn't want to. Uh, abandoned these mobilities just because they were told to do so by state authorities. So there's this kind of tension between the logic of the nation coming from political elites in Tehran and everyday practices of mobility among very different groups of people in Iran. Um, so I look at these negotiations between um, aspirations of political leaders and practices of all sorts of social groups Uh, like agriculturalist, tribes, workers, and travelers to understand how the Iranian nation was produced through various intersocial uh, interactions. So I guess in short, um, I'm primarily using the concept of mobility to, to understand this constant evolving processes of producing Iran on many spatial scales with many local origins rather than being produced in Tehran and disseminated to the rest of the country. Um, but um, but mo- I guess using mobility as a lens has also allowed me to integrate these imaginations of imperial officials in Iranian political elites about what infrastructure should achieve um, with these everyday practices of what workers and travelers actually do with the infrastructure. So kind of, rather than thinking about top-down stories of the planners and bottom-up stories of users as kind of separate opposing sides of a larger story, um, I was trying to integrate the two. Despite the way, maybe the way I've been characterizing uh, the story so far, it may sound like I'm trying to oppose these two stories. But what I really try to do is to integrate these stories. Um, And I have to say that was the really fun part of writing the book because I primarily identify myself as a social historian, but I had to, you know, be a political historian in some ways and cultural historian and intellectual historian. And um, that sort of doing different kind, dealing with different kinds of resources, using different kinds of methods, Um, was a really fun part of writing this book.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is also why your book appeared to me as very anthropological. Like, often anthropologists of infrastructure or mobility try to find this in-between of top-down and bottom-up. And, you know, I love how your book, um, just like, you know, the trans-Iranian railway forging connectivity is forges all these connectivities between different spaces, times, the social, the political, um, the everyday, and so on. Um, And, you know, my next question is about a particular side of that. Um, So in the book, you show us that mobility does not only concern materialities and moments, but it produces the everyday subjectivities and embodiment. Um, And, you know, you told us a little bit about how you arrived at this, but how did you specifically um, end up thinking about, you know, subjectivity and embodiment in your work? And how does mobility expand literatures on subjectivity or making of the cells?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for an excellent question. Um, so I should, I should probably qualify or define how I use mobility in my book, because that's a really mm-hmm. important part of the um, how I structured it, mm-hmm. the book. Uh, so when I discuss mobility, I talk about very different aspects. And one aspect is probably the most obvious one, the fact of physical movement itself, like travel and migration. Um, and this is how I think historians often talk about uh, this macro-scale movement uh, of people, goods, ideas across space to talk about kind of very large uh, structural change, right? And the second aspect I talk about is a much smaller scale. So how individuals make a lot of micro motions as they move across space. So for example, um, this can be about how railway passengers behave and carry themselves in the railway compartments as they travel, or how workers move their bodies as they fulfill their duties, um, you know, as part of the railway crew. So there's kind of a larger spatial movement from point A to point B, but there's a lot of micro motions happening as that larger mo- uh, movement takes place. And then there is the third aspect, uh, which is how individuals assign meanings to the experiences of the two aspects I just mentioned. And all these are very often integrated into individual stories of everyday life. And I guess to make it a little more conc- concrete, um, I should give you uh, the uh, my favorite example that I use in the introduction. Um, so when I read uh, Railway Workers' autobiographical accounts, I was really struck by how they weave the physical and emotional hardship associated with their work Mm -hmm. into stories of migration and travel. So they would talk about, you know, they're having to migrate for work from one province to another as the symbol of their sacrifices for the nation because they had to leave their family behind Mm -hmm. and get used to a very different natural environment, climate, uh, local customs and they tie these stories of migration to more concrete kind of material hardship, um, like the gritty taste of sand in rationed bread or the feeling of pulling out corpses of their co-workers right after railway accidents happened um, or the kind of excessive sweating caused by the heat of locomotives Right. So there's a lot of examples of these material, uh, tangible experiences, Mm -hmm. and they weave these everyday experiences of mobility in their workplace into macro scale of stories of migration, travel. And by weaving them together, they are trying to make an argument that they were the most worthy workers of the nation. And what they're trying to do, really, is to differentiate themselves from all other workers. Right. So mobility on different levels was really intimately connected to how they defined themselves uh, in comparison with others who did not experience the same migration, the same physical mental hardship associated with migration. Um, and and um, it was helpful for, helpful for me to read outside of history, to come up with this way of analyzing these autobiographical accounts. Um, So in particular, you know, I borrowed ideas from mobility scholars in the social sciences like Tim Crespo and Peter Adde, who explained different aspects of mobility in a similar way to what I just discussed. And importantly, they emphasized mobility as kind of embedded in and uh, uh, productive of social relations. And this way of understanding the mobility beyond just travel and migration was really helpful because it explained to me why workers, uh, travelers, and others narrated their lives through stories of mobility and why mobility was central to their self, um, self-narration, which makes sense if we remind ourselves that, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know prescribing exactly how to be mobile citizens was the central project of the new Pahlavi state. And so accounts of workers, travelers, I was reading, were their responses to uh, negotiations with this normative vision of mobile Iranian citizenship, right? Um, And and so I I think mobility was really at the core of this kind of constantly evolving subject formation processes that I talk about, especially in the second half of the book. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, wow, that's, that's really wonderful to know. Um, and yeah, it, it makes me think about, you know, the use of autobiographies and anthropological work too and how that can, you know, open up new questions, mm-hmm. new horizons. Um, so, you know, it's also wonderful to know in a methodological sense as well. Um, so now that we've zoomed into individuals, I want to zoom out a little bit um, like okay. you in your <laughs> book. <laughs> so, you know, in the book, you don't tell us the story of Iran. I mean, you do, but you don't only tell us the story of Iran. You zoom mm-hmm. out a little bit and show us that the Trans-Iranian Railway is at the same time a trans-imperial project. Um, so can you speak to um, the imperial imaginations and forms of empire that um, the connectivities the railway produces um, can create? Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. Um, So let me maybe first talk about why I wanted to zoom out of Iran spatially. (laughs) Sure. Um, (laughs) um, um, So I was drawn to the idea of this sort of spatially zooming out of Iran Mm -hmm. for uh, two reasons. One was related to a initially unrelated research project I was doing, which was about the Japanese uh, Muslim converts uh, hajj in the interwar period. And oh, wow. so I was looking at a lot of uh, Japanese travelogues to Mecca and uh, diplomatic uh, archival records and um, publications about Islam coming out from Japan uh, in the interwar period. And that project really required me to follow these journeys of these converts from Japan to China and uh, uh, Singapore, Java or India and then Hejaz. So it really made me think about these trans-regional connections that um, area studies frameworks tend to obscure. Um, So I was kind of looking out for those connections as as I read sources about the Trans-Iranian Railway and the second uh, reason comes more directly from the primary sources. And I, as I read Persian travelogues, railway workers' accounts, and uh, archival documents from many places, it became clear to me that, sure, the Trans-Iranian Railway was a national project, but it also depended on a lot of pre-existing transnational connections and produced new connections that transcended the nation. So I discuss much about 19th century Iranian travelers going to places like India or the Caucasus, Egypt, imagining Iran's future railways. And once construction begins in the 1920s, uh, the railway created massive labor flows, right? Connecting Northern Iran to Russia, the Caucasus Anatolia, and southern part of the southwestern Iran was more connected to the Persian Gulf world uh, with Iraq and India as um, major suppliers of uh, early workers. So there are a lot of regional connections that produced the railway and was produced by the railway. And I wanted to think about these connections because too often um, we think of histories of infrastructure or histories of technology in the non-west by thinking about the West as the origin of technological expertise, mm-hmm. and then there is a particular non quote unquote non Western place we are looking at mm-hmm. as the receiving end of that expertise, and they try to negotiate with Western knowledge, um, but it often sort of kind of reduces this history to the relationship between the West and a specific place in the non West. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: And so that wasn't really the case here. I'm sure Europe was the kind of ultimate reference point for many Iranian nationalists, but the specific concrete interactions were happening much more regionally uh, in Iran's, Iran's surrounding world. Um, so this conscious shift to make a more transnational approach to study the railway project helped me sift through a massive amount of British documents about railway concessions uh, which I think uh, is the main part of your your uh, question. Um, this idea of kind of um, zooming out of Iran and taking a more consciously transnational approach to study the railway project helped me kind of process this massive amount of British documents about railway concessions because there are literally like uh, hundreds of files about these concessions of the late 19th century. Um, so there are quite many empirical studies that examine various diplomatic negotiations surrounding the, you know, the 30 or so railway concessions in the late 19th century, early 20th century Iran um, most of which didn't really materialize in the end, by the way. Um, but I, was, I really struggled to figure out how to make sense of this massive information. But once I began to pay attention to many regional frameworks, um, many regional frameworks uh, in Iran's surrounding world, I began to read them to think about what kind of spatial imagination shaped um, through discussions of various British railway concessions, right. So in a way, this these massive archival documents produced knowledge about Iran and its place in the in the larger imperial map. And this imperial map wasn't just about London and India, but it involved imagining a larger scale with many places in between, connected by regional links, and. This is why many imperial plans did not even go through Tehran. So whether the railway would serve Tehran or not was a secondary co- well, It wasn't a primary question for uh, British imperial officials because their goal was really to produce an Iran, um, was to reimagine an extended imperial or even trans-imperial space connected by steamships and railways. And I, I, I say extended because these plans often included places outside of the formal British Empire, mm-hmm. right? So discussions of connecting the Levant to Basra, to Iran and India, or connecting Russia to India via Iran, or connecting the Levant all the way to China... So the plans even included these dreams of connecting Ottoman, Russian, British, and Qin empires. So really all sorts of routes were discussed and reshaped the kind of mental imperial maps of British officials. And this, this, this imperial imagining of space is important because Iranian nationalist imaginations of the Trans-Iranian Railway Project Emerged by the turn of the 20th century really in response to these imperial imaginations. So for Iranian nationalists, it was outrageous that imperial plans essentially essentially severed the nation, right? By connecting yeah. peripheries of Iran to competing imperial circuits of connectivity, making them closer to maybe Bombay or Basra, but was more distant from Tehran. Mm-hmm. Or- so for them that was absolutely there is absolutely no question that that the railway would go through Tehran and produce a Tehran centered uh, national uh, space. Um
1: Wow, thank you very much for this response, Mikia and You know, we've zoomed in, we've zoomed out. My next question is about somewhere in between. Um, (laughs) So I really appreciated your contribution on the unevenness of mobility. And, you know, you show us that the Trans-Iranian Railway keeps some people in place to make others more mobile, redistributing mobilities. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the redistribution distributive and uneven sides of mobility generated through this project?
0: Um, sure. Um, so I I have a chapter that talks um, about inhabitants who lived along the route, uh, like agriculturalists and tribes um, and how they experienced mobility during railway construction and afterwards. Um, so so just to give you a few examples, so many agriculturalists were displaced due to land confiscation and others were displaced because, you know, contractors often destroyed agricultural lands. And then once the construction process was uh, over, rail traffic on the track caused uh, massive dust and sand accumulation on nearby farmlands, making them unusable for agriculture or um I discussed water had to be diverted from one village uh, and its irrigation system because operating steam locomotives required so much water, right? So in many ways, I think these examples show that building and operating the railway system didn't really just produce rail rail mobility um, because it inadvertently moved, you know, dust, sand, water and whatnot causing environmental problems and mm-hmm. displaced many inhabitants along the railway route. So, I mean, it's just, I think, a good example of forced mobility produced by the railway project. And um, so in overall, in the chapter, I discuss many other examples to show how the construction of the railway was contingent on, uh, you know, redirecting many existing mobilities um um, but one example I just especially want to talk about is, um, is uh, the example of passengers, um, which illustrates uneven redistribution of mobilities um, after the completion of the um, construction in 1938. Mm-hmm. So, so the opening of the railway did not necessarily mean passengers could take the train and travel. Um, and one example I talk about is, uh, comes from the Allied occupation period of Iran during World War II. Um, mm-hmm. So Iran was occupied by the Anglo-Soviet forces in 1941, with, and later it was joined by the Americans. So this Allied occupation is happening in Iran uh, during World War II so that um, the Allies could transport American lend-lease materials to the Soviet Union. To support uh, Soviet war efforts against Germany, um, so Iran became kind of um, entangled in these uh, World War II um, uh, warfare. And because because the needs of the Allied forces were prioritized throughout the occupation period, there there were not enough tickets available for Iranian passengers, especially. Um, um, in the third and fourth class cards, so we have examples of villagers in northern Iran complaining about the unavailability of tickets, right? And I haven't, mm. I don't think, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but uh, uh, part of the funding to construct the railway came from consumption taxes on uh, items like tea and sugar. So, regardless of where you are in Iran, you kind of had to indirectly contribute to this railway project. And (laughs) once it's constructed, you can't quite travel by it. So this is kind of interesting because it shows how passengers' mobility was kind of hierarchically distributed, right? Mm -hmm. The Allies and Iranian military personnel were prioritized, but Iranian travelers, especially the poor ones who wanted to travel in third and fourth class cars, couldn't exercise their mobility despite having this railway station in their village. So we, I'm I'm talking about it, especially because we tend to emphasize how Iran was never colonized, unlike many of its neighbors. But if we think about the occupation period, um, it created temporarily the kind of hierarchy that was similar to many colonial conditions.
1: Thank you very much. This was a very vivid example Uh, And I'm sure our readers, uh, sorry, our listeners will really appreciate that. Um, And, you know, my next question is about methodology. And, you know, I think even our conversation so far has illustrated your methodological prowess in moving between different scales from the nation state to connections between empires, everyday lives and personal narratives. Um, can you take us through how you researched and wrote across these different scales, and how would this methodology speak to fields beyond history, like Middle East studies or infrastructure studies?
0: Um, sure, it's it's a good question. Um, so to me, this multi-scalar aspect of the book came rather late in the process, right? So again, my initial research was really about looking for different kinds of sources to move away from methodological statism and write a rich social history of the Trans-Iranian Railway. So the research process started with just collecting um, Iranian press sources, uh, Persian travelogues and memoirs and various industry publications. And then I went on to collect you know, more archival sources from London, Copenhagen, and Tehran, and then later I uh, explored more uh, U.S. national archival sources to study the occupation period. And to be honest, when I was doing much of my research collecting the sources, I think I thought my goal was really diversifying the source material, and I wasn't really consciously collecting sources to tell a multi-scalar story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And... So much of the information about people traveling and migrating, debates about how people should move their bodies while working and traveling, and how people narrated these experiences, all of these things were in the sources, but I was either oblivious to them, or they were just buried in the thick descriptions of social history I was initially more um, interested in. Um, so the writing process and the process of reconceptualization involved just so much going back to reread the same sources and reorganizing notes to bring out the questions of scale in each chapter as much as possible. And I mean, completely rewriting introduction, conclusion and creating new chapters. So it was um, sort of almost like writing an entirely new book. And in this process of completely rethinking the project, I thought it was helpful to read really broadly, more broadly than I was used to. Um, so like you mentioned earlier about anthropology, I started to read more ethnographic studies of infrastructure by anthropologists. And that was really helpful in thinking about how infrastructure is produced, um, produced by difference, but it's also productive of difference at the same time. And it was, really helpful to read those kind of very close ethnographic studies of small communities in urban centers to kind of get a sense of how I can do similar work um, in thinking about the Trans-Iranian Railway. And among more recent historical studies of empire and globalization, um, I thought, um you know, works like Eileen Kane's study of the Russian hajj infrastructure, or Valeska Huber's work on the Swiss Canal in globalization, Michael Christopher Lowe's study on the management of pilgrim's mobility in um, in the Ottoman Hejaz, or uh, Kate Macdonald's study on tourism and spatial production in the Japanese empire. So all of these works about empire um, made me think about how infrastructure networks um, and by infrastructural networks, I'm including not just material structures, but also you know legal frameworks, imperial institutions like mm-hmm. consulates, um, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And how these networks produced a larger hierarchically organized imperial space. And oftentimes this space could go beyond the boundary of the formal empire. Right. So Mm -hmm. I was reading, having read those works, I was starting to think more about how I needed to look beyond Iran to understand how the Iranian nation was spatially produced. I mean, there is this kind of work within Iranian historiography, but I think the general emphasis has been on more intellectual connections, but, you know, these intellectual connections were contingent on these more material connections that existed. So, um, I mean, this kind of multi scalar research, um, I think it could be applicable in various disciplines. I mean, even, you know, for like yourself, for anthropologists, I think many works on, you know, roads, electricity, water infrastructure, they tend to focus on ethnographic, uh, particular ethnographic site in an urban center and stay there for an extended period of time. And, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. but I think there are also (laughs) I don't
1: know I'm
0: I'm, uh, mischaracterizing what anthropologists do we have
1: to do that
0: (laughs) (laughs) but um, I mean if you follow these mobile individuals right um, there are also ethnographic studies that in which you have multiple spatial scales um, and by following individuals uh, movement we can understand how uh, individuals and groups create and maintain networks in kind of spontaneous manners with or without strong state involvement. Mm -hmm, Um, um, I guess a good example of this kind of multi-scale ethnographic study is uh, uh, Fariba Adel-Khaz, The Thousand and One Borders of Iran. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she explores how Iranian national identity is continuously produced today through various transnational relations in the borderlands and in diasporic communities. So she's following a lot of travelers and migrants in uh, multiple ethnographic sites from Iran, Afghanistan, Dubai, Tokyo, and LA. So, um, so yeah, I, I think multiscalar research has applicability in many disciplines beyond history um, to write you know, everyday life of all sorts of people into larger stories of nations, uh, empires, or globalization.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it's also very helpful to hear about, you know, how the dissertation became a book, uh, especially for our listeners like myself, maybe who are on their way to take on this task. Um, so thank you very much for- Right.
0: And I think, again, there was no sort of grand plan when I started. And I think it's a typical story. Many of us, you know, start a dissertation. I think I'm sure the process has been like that for you, too, too when you started to think about a dissertation and the end product you have is Absolutely very different, Absolutely right? different. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, lastly, I want to know, What is next for you? What are some new projects um, or questions you're grappling with, if you can, (laughs) during the pandemic?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good question because the pandemic does impact the kind of projects I um, think about. So I kind of, I have two, well, I have several projects in mind, uh, mostly related to uh, travel, mobility, space, Um, but I'm thinking of two of them as future book projects, right? So Mm -hmm. the first one is a history of mobility in the Indo-Iranian-Afghan borderlands, especially since the 19th century. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: by this Indo-Afghan-Iranian borderlands, I'm really thinking about, you know, places like Balochistan, Afghanistan, uh, then Mm -hmm. there is Central Asia in the north and the Indian Ocean in the south. So it's a very kind of sparsely populated arid areas that often fall into this crack of area studies, right? If you think Mm -hmm. about it, these are, you know, Iran is in Middle Eastern studies and uh, the Pakistani side of Balochistan is in South Asian studies. And there is Afghanistan, which doesn't really fall into area studies. And there is Mm -hmm. Central Asia and there is the Indian Ocean. So despite so much history of connectivity in this Larger area, um, I think we tend to study them too separately, and mm-hmm. um, and this is true especially once we get to the 19th century, right? Pre-modernists always study this area uh, in a much more integrated way, but not so among uh, those, of us, those of us who study the 19th century onward. So, so there is again, I, like I mentioned earlier, there is much work on kind of Indo-Iranian intellectual connections, but what about what's going on on the ground? So what I want to do is to reconceptualize this space, not just peripheries of Iran, India, or Afghanistan, but a space connected by various actors, right? That includes truck drivers, buses, uh, nomadic tribal groups, or camel transport. And camel transport is one of the things or animal transport in general is something I wanted to pay more attention to in my first book, but uh, I don't think I did a good job doing it. So I want to expand that aspect of animal transport much more because you know when we think about mobility, we tend to think about mechanized modes of mobility, but animal mobility continues to exist long after the coming of you know cars and uh, uh, railways. So that's my first project, but it also requires more research, uh, particularly in Iran, which is a little um, uncertain at the present moment. So the second project I'm thinking about is, it's um, about Japan's spatial geographical imaginary, right? So I mentioned earlier, Mm. I have this previous article about the Japanese Hajj Uh, during the uh, Japanese Empire. And expanding on this, I want to explore a particular strand of Asianism in modern Japan. And by Asianism, I mean an idea that, or belief that there is such a thing as an Asian civilization with some sort of shared civilizational essence. And this idea became really prevalent in the late, late 19th century and had, had a significant role in driving Japanese imperialism in the first half of the 20th century, right, up until 1945 or even afterwards. Um, so mainstream, Jap- mainstream strands of Japanese imperialism or Japanese Asianism, uh, excuse me, <laughs> conceptualizes Asia as a civilizational space that is primarily defined by East Asian traditions. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, um, you know, it's defined by East and South Asian cultures tied by Buddhist traditions. But I want to focus on another influential spatial imaginary of Asia that encompassed the Middle East as a Western core of Asia, with Japan being the Eastern core. Right. So Mm -hmm. this version of Asianism includes all the way from Japan to uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, and uh, the Arab world. And I mean, so much work has been done, uh, especially in the Japanese language about this uh, similar topics. But I think most of the work, both and um, most of the existing works focus primarily on political elites and uh, prominent intellectuals. But uh, what I've learned so far is that this construction of larger Asia from Japan to the Middle East was not really restricted to a small number of political elites and uh, prominent Asianist intellectuals. So I want to shift attention to travelers, traders, uh, Muslim converts and artists, and kind of generally less prominent figures to understand how this particular geographical imagination, civilizational imagination of Asia was constructed in modern Japan. And the reason I think this uh, research project can be more doable uh, right now is because I well, a lot more documents have been digitized and I have collected many of the sources um, from various Japanese archives in the last 10 years. So without this transnational mobility that um, we increasingly uh, realize this was privilege, <laughs> um you know, I, yeah, I can do it, I can do much of my this research without traveling uh, too much.
1: Yeah, wow, these projects sound um really exciting, and we'll be looking forward to those books and hopefully, <laughs> they out, we can have you at New Books Network again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hopefully in the next decade or two, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you very much, Dr. Koyagi, for joining us and for your insights.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Arican.
1: I'm your host, Aliza Jan. This discussion of Iran in Motion, Mobility, Space, and the Trans-Iranian Railway, published by Stanford University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.